A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. The biggest topic in 2020 is sustainability. The executives that we surveyed, almost 300 executives, are really approaching 2020 with a prevailing sense of anxiety and concern. And yet, a 3 to 4% growth rate next year is not bad. It's not a crash. If you're a super winner and you make all the absolute returns, you can invest into all the things you have to invest today. There is basically no limit in terms of resources and there's also hardly any limit in terms of talent. If you are a hammered, mid-sized, mid-market brand, you are scarce of resources yeah. and you still are expected by the consumer to invest in all of those topics. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. This week on Inside Fashion, we go deep inside the State of Fashion 2020, our annual report published in partnership with McKinsey and Company. I sit down with Akim Berg, global leader of McKinsey's fashion apparel and luxury practice, to explore some of the 10 themes that will define the state of fashion next year. We consider the growing pessimism amongst industry executives about the state of the industry. We talk about the super winners, those top 20 companies that are getting a disproportionate share of economic profit. And we also discuss how sustainability has risen to the top of executive agendas in fashion. So here's the state of fashion 2020. Welcome, Akin. Hi, Imran. Uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, always fun to do uh, the State of Fashion Report and it's fun to 
to discuss it. Sure. And we've got a lot to discuss. So this discussion is entirely informed by the state of fashion 2020. You can download the report um, on the BOF website and on the McKinsey website. Easy to find because we're both promoting it heavily at the moment. And overall, I would say, you know, one of the key findings in this year's report is that the executives that we surveyed, almost 300 executives, are really approaching 2020 with, I guess, a prevailing sense of anxiety and concern. There was pessimism across all geographies and all of the value segments uh, in the industry with very, very few bright spots. Um, 55% of fashion executives actually foresee a slowdown in the industry in 2020 compared and, and only 9% of respondents think conditions will improve next year. Last year, 49% of the respondents said that they thought this year would be better than last year. So you can see that there's just been a general shift in mood. The most optimistic region is in Asia, but even here, only 14% of executives expect an improvement in these conditions. And you know, perhaps, Akin, we could just spend a couple of minutes talking about like what you think are underlying factors driving this you know, pervasive pessimism. Yeah, I think it's surprising, first of all. I think if you look at, uh, at the numbers, they are, you know, they are pretty clear. We had uh, 44% that expected a better year in 19. We have now 60%, almost 60% that expect you know, a worse year in 20. So I think there seems to be a significant shift here in, in the way uh, the executive we surveyed look at the future. But why? Like what's yeah. happened this year that's shifted the mood so dramatically? No, I think but, but let's reflect a bit on 19. So I think, um, uh, I think we were good on predicting a lot of things, but we did not predict uh, trade wars to the extent we've seen in 19. We did not predict, um, I think, what is happening in Hong Kong uh, these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not predicting, you know, I think there, there's a lot going on uh, in the world. And if you look at the more Western markets, I think most of the Western markets are stagnant as they have been for many, many years. Um, and, um, and you do not see that any, you know, macro effects would be in favor of the fashion industry. On top, you got, you know, a sustainability discussion, you know, for very good reasons that is also impacting, uh, you know, the way people consume. Um, and uh, and in a way, we are nine years into a bulls market uh, at the stock exchange, where you know people also uh, ask themselves, you know, how long will that continue, and how long the Federal Reserves will pump, uh, you know, uh, cheap money into the market. So, if you combine those effects. I think it, it's not totally off uh, to so say. So you think people are worried for good reason? I think people are worried for good reason, and uh, and I think there is a is a broader you know effect uh, with consumers that is now reflected by our executives. And, and yet, a three to four percent growth rate next year is not bad. It's not bad. So yeah. the, first of all, it's not a crash, and I think that's important. Yeah. So we're not you know predicting a recession. Maybe we're not brave enough, Imran, but uh, I think we, we don't do that. But if you look, I think you need to put it in perspective into you know what has happened the last, let's say, 15 years. 
If you look at the period 2005 to 15, we had an average growth of 5.5% mm -hmm. every year, year over year, 5.5%. Then we had 2016, which you will remember from you know, all the discussions we had was the worst year since the financial crisis with 1.5% of growth. Mm -hmm. uh, and since then, you know, we moved up a bit uh, in 18, up to 4.5%. And since 18, we're going uh, slowly but surely, uh, you know, a bit backwards. Yeah. So this year we expected 4% roughly. And I think we're, that's also where we are likely to land. Um, and uh, that in, doesn't include effects, you know, like Hong Kong, at least we didn't expect those. Um, and now we're saying it's probably somewhere around three and a half percent. So it's not terribly bad, but it also shows that in most markets, you know, you cannot expect organic growth to happen. And in most categories, you cannot expect that. Uh, and if at all, you know, growth is uh, expected to be above average in emerging markets, emerging Europe, emerging Asia. Uh, I think in, in a way, Middle East is seen a bit stronger um, um, uh, given, you know, there is a bit of an, you know, uh, of an improvement, but mm -hmm. uh, it's not going to be uh, stellar. That's yeah. for sure. What's the forecast for China? So this is the market that's been driving 60, 70% of the growth in the luxury market. What are you expecting? I think we, we haven't singled out China, but, but you know, China is... But I know you have some info. Yeah, so I think, but it, it's, you know, look at GDP development. That was the lowest since, I think, 30 years mm -hmm. uh, with around uh, 6% uh, according to the official numbers. Uh, we believe it's going to be somewhere on the average 4 or 5%. Uh, yeah. While we think that, and if you look at the report, APEC emerging, and China is part of APEC emerging, is around 7%. So maybe at best it's 6 But yeah. it, it's not, you know, it's not the double-digit numbers we, we used to see, and it's not even in the high-end uh, single digits. Sure. The other thing that we introduced in the report last year that has become really popular is and discussed <laughs> discussed and widely discussed maybe <laughs> yeah. slightly controversial yeah. but in the best way possible yeah we get the one or the other question why we are not on that list yes it's yeah. called the super winners and basically can you explain what the super winners concept is in lay person's yes. language like what is economic profit and why do these 20 companies get singled out in our report yeah no very happy to do that so um, what we started last year and what we've given more um, space in the report and more depths in the kind of analysis is the whole idea, where does value creation happen in this industry? Um, and, um, and the way we analyzed that, and we've tried different measures for that, but we, we ended up looking at absolute economic profit. An absolute economic profit in US dollars means we take the net profit uh, of a, a corporation, of a listed corporation, to be fair. So it's some 350 companies. We've, uh, we have data for the last 10, 12 years by now. Um, and uh, we then deduct uh, the cost of capital um, uh, for you know, that that company is, uh, is using to then derive the economic profit. So it's not net profit, but it's net profit minus um, cost of capital. That gives you then a measure for, you know, how much they are earning, uh, you know, really. And the, as you can see from, from the top 20 list, that ranges 
somewhere between 3 billion for the number one, which is Nike, um, to uh, number 20, which is Burberry, with around 350 million US dollars. And just to make that even more clear, Akim, I mean, if for those of you who are referring to the report, on page 92, exhibit 15, you know, our, our tagline there says the fashion industry remains a winner takes all market. And basically what we're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but a disproportionate, a highly disproportionate amount of the value created in the industry is coming from a very, very small numbers of, number of players in the industry. And actually most other players are destroying value. How highly, that, highly disproportionate. So how does that actually work? Like, what does that mean in practice? Yeah. So I think, you know, first of all, to explain the, the graph, um, what you see here is the top 20% of the players. And that, again, listed companies, um, the sample is roughly 350. So some 70 companies generate in 2018 177 percent of the economic profit of the industry in absolute so more aggregated. than 100 no 77 percent more than 100 yeah yeah so um given that we only the profit pool in the end is then 100 so obviously the answer is uh, the rest is destroying um, 77%. So 280 some odd companies. Yes, economic are, profit. So are, are not creating value. If you take um, cost of capital into consideration. So, um, and that's obviously what a lot of the, uh, the other KPIs do not take into uh, consideration. So if you only look at net profit, you can have still a positive net profit. But if you then have you know, deployed a lot of capital and you have a high WAC, then a weighted average cost of capital, um, then, you know, you are in negative territory. Okay. And for people who are not finance experts or don't remember their business school <laughs> jargon, what is cost of capital? Well, cost of capital is, is the weighted cost of capital given the risk of the business you have. So we take some measures across, uh, you know, the sample um, and we normalize that. Um, and uh, and therefore, you know, I think we used a WEC of around uh, seven or eight percent. So, so don't co and cost of capital is a mixture of the cost of equity and cost of debt. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So, All right, and you and just weight the average. We weight the average, but, but coming back to the analysis, um, I think the interesting part here is one hundred seventy-seven percent. The top twenty percent do that. If you then look at the top twenty players. This is more than 100%. Uh, and still just comes... for your reference, this is page 94 of the report, Exhibit 17. So those 20 players still do more than 100%. So, you know, the top 20 out of the top 70 yeah, um, um, uh, are the ones that do even, you know, generate even more profit. And the list here has changed a bit because, you know, performance has changed. But we also had to take into consideration the IFRS um, standards in accounting, and they have been changed. So I, I'm not going to go into that detail because then we are here in a finance lecture, which mm -hmm. I think is not that engaging. Not but if engaging. you look in the report, you also see the differences that play out in this way. And I think it's fair to say that change in the, in the standards has made the super winners even more uh, profitable compared to the rest. The other thing you look at or you notice when you look at this list is the mix of companies that, that constitute the super winners. What conclusions would you draw yeah. from the ones that are actually performing well? Like, What do they have in common? I think the, you know, the first conclusion is they are pretty diverse. 
Yeah. So, um, and but you also see that some of the trends and some of the um, sub industries, sub categories that have performed very well have, you know, provided an imprint on our top twenty. So you see sportswear companies number one, Nike. You see Adidas on the list. Um, you see new entrant, which is Lululemon on the list. You see Anta Sports, which is also new and uh, you know one of the first Asians on the list. Um, and you also see a couple of other players on that list that do sports. Okay. So the the overarching sports and athleisure trend we've seen over the last couple of years has definitely played out, you know, profitably for for the bigger players um, on that list. The second big trend on that list is um, luxury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the big luxury conglomerates uh, are on this list. Um, and uh, that also shows it's a high margin business. By now, they're also very, very big when it comes to turnover. That translates in high absolute um, economic profit. So, um, And that makes sense because we know that the growth that the industry has been seeing over the past few years has largely been driven by the luxury sector. The growth, but also, you know, the profitability. Yeah. And in 16, you know, luxury was, uh, you know, not very strong because it was a bad year. But in the good years, we see that um, luxury is taking, you know, a, a very big share of, of the profit generated. Mm-hmm. The other thing you see on that list is discount and value is also represented. So it's not only the top end of the market and when it comes to price points per product, but also, you know, the lower end discount and value are on that list. Yeah. And you see here um, um, in, in the value segment, you see H&M, you see uh, TJX, which is uh, TJ Maxx holding company, off price player in the United States and a couple of others. So and Inditex, which is uh, which we would, I think, now define more as mid market. OK, um, but it's interesting. That's the only mid market player on the list. Yeah. So and that's what we, I think, discussed at length last year is that you know the mid market pretty much gets hammered uh, by uh, luxury affordable uh, luxury and premium on the top and then you know they get uh, pushed uh, from the bottom uh, by discount and value so what is inditex doing right in that mid market that other players there are not doing right i think they have a unique business model just the way they operate uh, i think it has been discussed at length uh, you know their speed to market um, their sense for trends uh, but on the other hand, it's also a very global business. Yeah. So, and uh, we said before, the growth is happening not in the stagnant, uh, you know, Western markets. It's happening in the emerging markets, in yeah. the East and in the South, and, and that's where they are operating. And thus far, given all the talk this year about the climate crisis and sustainability and circular fashion and all this kind of stuff. It doesn't really seem to be playing out in the performance of some of these like value and mid-market companies that are still performing extremely well. They're still Absolutely. growing. No, it's still growing, still you know increasing profits. Um, and I think also despite all the doomsday discussions, also outlook for next year, on average, the industry is highly profitable. Yeah, yeah. the average. I think the, the difference is, and that's what we tried to point out with the report, is there is few that really take the lion's share of all the profits. And there is a lot of players that are now facing tough times. And I think that's, to me, also the big theme for the report and the next year is if you are a super winner and you make all the absolute returns, you can invest into all the things you have to invest today, which is digital, which is data, which is sustainability, 
um, which is, I don't know, you know, 10 other things you want to invest into. There is basically no limit in terms of resources and there's also hardly any limit in terms of talent. If you are a hammered, mid-sized, mid-market brand, you are scarce of resources yeah. and you still, you know, are expected by the consumer to invest in all of those topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that will be a stretch. And I think it's fair to expect that if, you know, 2020 plays out difficult uh, in terms of uh, GDP environment, consumer um, demand, we will see some uh, significant fallouts in the mid-market. Mm-hmm. This year you also, uh, in the McKinsey Global Fashion Index, shared some new data on hidden champions, those companies that are performing well, but not publicly traded. The hidden champions, as we call them, is our privately listed companies. And I think it's fair to say, if you at the real population of that industries, uh, we're gonna have you know thousands and thousands of players and not only 350, yeah? So the bigger ones in the more developed markets, most of them are listed. Um, but there is um, a number of players that are privately owned. And we believe that in the, in the bracket above, um, above 10 billion, you know, uh, we have something like 25 billion in turnover. Chanel is, is probably the most obvious player, you know, mm-hmm. in that field. Uh, we also know that in the bracket between 3 and 10 billion, there's another 55 players. 55 players between 3 and 10 billion. And just to name a few, you know, Rolex, you know, um, Deichmann from Germany, which is uh, a a known shoe retailer that operates, uh, you know, internationally, Uh, Decathlon, you know, as a placeholder for the Mullier family and and their businesses uh, in the fashion industry. So there is a lot of family-owned, but also private equity-owned businesses. Um, And if you go one level down, three to five billion, Bestseller group from uh, from Denmark, uh, Swarovski uh, in the crystals, uh, and many others. And what we wanted to point out is there is a whole industry out there that is not reflected necessarily in in our index because we don't get data. It's privately owned companies, so it's private information that we cannot access. Um, but it is very significant, and uh, we will now work on digging a bit deeper and providing more examples, hopefully then in the next report, mm-hmm. uh, on those uh, more hidden platforms. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. 
I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Okay, so the heart of the State of Fashion Report is always the 10 themes that, you know, together between the BOF team and the McKinsey team, we hammer out um, over the past few months. Um, this year's themes are as usual, divided into three groups, the global economy, consumer shifts, and the fashion system. Um, should we just talk about the global economy really quickly? I mean, the key takeaways were what exactly? I think global economy, the, the, the key takeaway is um, uh, on high alert. I think in line with how we opened this discussion, uh, I think the sentiment is... Uh, um, is not too good. Um, nobody knows on whether um, the trade war between uh, the United States and China, you know, will now come to an end or not. You also don't necessarily know where the next trade war will open. Um, and I think also, uh, you know, some of the other, you know, political environment or events and the political environment we face. I mean, is, we still don't know what's going to happen with Brexit. So, like, that's yeah, unclear. Being here in London, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah. And then uh, beyond China? I think beyond China, what we wanted to, you know, respond to what we heard from a lot of people out there is given that the growth rates in China are, you know, stagnating a bit for fashion, um, the question is, is there another China? And, and the, the quick answer to that is no, there's no other China. So China is still the biggest, you know, of the emerging markets, has shown amazing growth over the years and is in itself... A huge opportunity but if you look at uh, the younger population in geographies in Asia Pacific in India which was one of our topics last year in Russia in the Middle East um, you recognize there is a lot of young people that would love to spend more and therefore we you know we and a lot of players in the market believe that is relevant to look at that. Yeah, I mean, the, the exhibit to refer to for anyone who's following along in the report is exhibit four. And I thought this stat was really powerful. There's basically 1.2 billion people below the age of 30 um, in 2025. 
in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Brazil, Southeast Asia, and India. And that's compared to 517 million people in China. I mean, 517 people is nothing to sneeze at. But just the fact that there's 1.2 billion people under the age of 30 in these, some of these other markets is really interesting. Yeah, and I think and what we predict now um, for 2020 is more companies will also look beyond China. It doesn't mean they don't look at China anymore, um, but they have realized it's also not that easy to be successful in China. So uh, we believe that uh, they will take another look at the Middle East, they will take another look at Russia, and they will take another look at Asia-Pacific. It's obviously much more fragmented. It's not one market, not one language, um, but it is, um, it's, uh, it's quite interesting uh, to look. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about consumer shifts. We've got this trend called next-gen social, then we have in the neighborhood, we have sustainability first. Maybe let's focus on sustainability first. Yeah. That was a resounding piece of feedback we got from executives this year. Yeah, I think it's it's we predicted last year that the whole um, uh, you know topic around increased transparency um, would be super relevant. If you recall, we also spoke about the end of ownership, which at least to a certain extent is also a sustainability topic. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, has become much more of a sustainability topic, I think, than we thought in the first place. And I think it's very fair to say that the biggest topic in 2020 is sustainability. I think that's what every of my client, you know, wants to discuss. Um, we've done another survey uh, where 55% of the companies say it is now part of the CEO agenda in, uh, you know, for fashion companies. Um, I think it's clearly out of its corner and it's part of, you know, it's, it's, it's in the middle of the limelight. Yeah, I mean, consumer pressure and awareness has played a role in kind of getting it up on that agenda. But when you're talking to your clients, Akim, and you know, the CEOs that you, you work with, what is the single most important question? Because sustainability is such a like big umbrella topic. Like, What is the thing that they're asking you? What are, what are they trying to figure out? I think the point is how to scale it. Yeah, I think we're at, and, and how can you really have impact on the topic? Um, and how do you um, how do you make a difference? And and it's very easy to appoint the head of sustainability. It's very easy to uh, to do uh, you know one or two light tower pilot projects. So you can do a lot of things. But if you really want to have impact, if you want to you know change the fact that the fashion industry is a, is a dirty industry and um, and is harming the planet, then the question is how do you do this? And how do you do it in a way that you can still achieve your other, you know, you know, corporate objectives? Yeah, in a sense of, you know, providing labor to people, you know, um, uh, generating profit, as we've seen uh, from the earlier discussion. How do you balance those things? But, you know, the, the big thing is how to scale it up. Okay. So let's move on to the fashion system, which is our third section. I mean, the ones that I really wanted to just double click on for a minute here are number six, which is materials revolution, which kind of connects back yep. to the sustainability point. Uh, what, are, what are your reflections on that? And how, how do, you know, the, the idea here is that companies, fashion companies have started to explore materials that are kind of non-standard alternatives to kind of standard materials that are highly polluting, consumptive of water, etc. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the research we've done shows that um, the chief purchasing officers, those people that buy the, the garments for a fashion company, uh, that their biggest topic uh, is all around materials. And then the second biggest topic is transparency of the supply chain. But the first one is really, if you want to make a difference, you should use sustainable fabrics, sustainable yarns. And, and I think that's already where the discussion starts. What is that? Yeah, yeah, what does that actually mean? Exactly. Is organic um, sustainable? And what does organic mean? What does organic mean? Yeah. You know, and, and you got an organic fabric, but you know, maybe you have to fly it around the world and therefore you have a bad carbon footprint. So I think it's not, it's not that black and white, but materials is definitely uh, you know, a way to um, increase the sustainability of garments. Um, and the biggest challenge is, you know, to get, you know, enough of those materials. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we foresee here as a trend for 2020 is we see there is a whole revolution on the way. Um, and the increasing consumer awareness that results in an increasing demand, you know, is then in the end also resulting in a demand for sustainable fabrics and yarns. Um, and uh, we believe that's going to be a big thing in 2020. Looking back at the outcomes from this year's report, what did you find most surprising? What weren't you expecting? I think um, the negative outlook or the, the level of negativity uh, and the consistency of that, you know, across geographies, across, you know, product categories, uh, across, you know, across price points, um, it seems to be broadly perceived as difficult, you know, to look into 2020. And if you recall the discussion we had last year, it was pretty much the opposite. I think people had, you know, expected it would, you know, it would be a good outlook. We expected growth a bit slower, but, but the momentum was positive. And, and we discussed it earlier, the reasons for that. But I think that negativity is, is, was a bit surprising uh, to me. Okay. And looking ahead now to 2020, you're like sitting down with a CEO and you have all these 10 themes and all the other information. I mean, your top clients, like what are you advising them to focus on? This is obviously dependent on the client. So because uh, all consulting we do at McKinsey is tailor-made, as you know. Of course. So, um, but there's obviously, there is, there is some topics. And I think there, that's also where we need to differentiate a bit our trends from, you know, other topics that are underway. So I think that the idea of the 10 trends is to say, what are the big breakthrough topics in 2020? That does not mean that trends we discussed the year before, two years ago or three years ago are gone, right? Yeah. So if you think about um, omnichannel, if you think about, you know, the use of data and, and artificial intelligence, if you um, think about all those topics. So I think a lot of those topics persist on the agenda. And if I look at the CEO agendas of my clients, you know, they are, there's a, still a big part around data. Everybody wants to do data and wants to get the benefits from that. Now that a lot of people invested a lot of money into it. If you look at what are the, what's the new topic, the one that, or the two, three that are really, really impactful, 
Um, I think there's clearly sustainability, as we earlier discussed. Um, and the question is really, what do you do about it? You know, how do you bring that to action? And, uh, you know, again, just appointing a head of sustainability doesn't, uh, you know, solve the problem. Um, the other topic that I think is pretty interesting on the list, and we haven't discussed that so far, is, uh, you know, the, what we call next-gen social. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I think everybody knows now about Facebook and Instagram, but but the question is really, how does that play out in the different regions? You know, what are the, the relevant um, players in Asia, in the, in the United States, in South America, you know, in the Middle East? It's all different ones. They all operate a bit differently. Um, and therefore, it's not good enough just to be, you know, to be a hero on Facebook, uh, you know, you need to be a hero on a lot of things and you need to have a, a pretty good team to steer that if you are operating oper- internationally and you need to steer away from just having followers to true engagement, yeah, mm-hmm. authentic and true engagement. And I think that's going to be a very interesting debate, um, you know, for a lot of companies in 2020. On the LVMH Tiffany deal, if I was just going to like, focus on that for a minute. What do you think is the thinking behind that deal? What's the, you know, like, you know, so the, the metrics that everyone's talking about is that, you know, it puts LVMH squarely in the luxury jewelry space or in the jewelry market, you know, makes them the biggest player now bigger than Richemont, which has always dominated that market. It also gives access to the American market where Tiffany is also big. And thirdly, it's positioned at a more accessible level. How do you think that adds to the portfolio for LVMH? I think you made the key points. I think North America is clearly, um, you know, that helps them to, to be bigger in North America. Um, but there's probably also some synergies with the other investments they have in the space. Um, they are great in, uh, you know, in, in building brands. Uh, I think the beauty of a conglomerate is um, that you also can, you know, move talent and, and expertise. Um, so I think there's, uh, you know, I think I'm sure they've done a very diligent job in thinking that through and uh, and they will have uh, very concrete plans on doing that. Okay. I, I got another question for you. If you look back at the 2019 report, how do you feel we did? Yeah. You know, um, did we did we get it right? You know, which one uh, did we not get right? So you see around, you know, that we're, we're you know, and I, I can help you with, with some of the trends. Yeah? Right. So um, I think we also had, you know, um, on the economic side, we had India and we had volatility. Um, uh, on uh, the, the consumer trends, uh, we had uh, the end or business, fashion business, we had the end of ownership. Yeah. Uh, we had radical transparency. We had self-disrupt. We had on-demand. I think now you also found the report. Okay, so when I, when I look back at 2019, the ones I feel like we nailed were caution ahead and trade 2.0 because I felt like um, there has been a slowdown in 20, uh, 2019, 2020. That seems like that cautious mood has now turned into this mood of high alert. Um, there's been a lot of questions around the shakeup of of supply chains because of trade wars and we've seen the direct impact of that but probably i mean the the, it's in the consumer shifts area where i think we were really you know on the end of ownership when it came to the rise of resale and rental players and one of the things we discussed at voices last week was in a single month 
in June, Depop, uh, The Real Real, and Vestier Collective raised over $400 million. I mean, if that wasn't an endorsement of those business models, I don't know what is. Um, getting Woke, I think this has been a year where consumer activism, especially amongst young generations, has really, really you know, soared. Uh, and then radical transparency. I think, you know, people are asking for more information about everything. And I think we're seeing that really, um, really, really take place. So, I mean, those are the areas. On the fashion system, I think the digital land grab with all the acquisitions that we saw that Farfetch and other players have made, that that really kind of played out. And and I guess self-disrupt as well. I think people are playing around with different business models. We've seen like Montclair Genius, for example, really... Yeah take off this past year and other players are kind of disrupting themselves as well. So, so we, did, we, did, we, a, not, we did a not bad job. What, what did we not get right? Well, the ascent of India, as it turns out, we did not get exactly right because, um, because that, you know, the Indian economy faced some challenges this year. Uh, the growth has slowed. Uh, people, I think we're predicting eight to 9% growth. In the Indian market, but that has not. there was eight percent GDP, yeah, which didn't didn't which materialize. Did, didn't materialize. They did that whole demonetization strategy. Uh, they had a couple of other economic challenges in the last twelve months that have like prevented. I think the fu- underlying fundamentals for India remain extremely strong. Um, well, we only have a few minutes left, so I don't know, Akim, if you have any parting thoughts or conclusions. Yeah, I think you know it's not going to get boring. I think that's that's for sure. Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, you know you know a lot of topics uh, to get right, uh, and uh, while people you know should take a a look at at least what we offer, you know what could be the ten trends for 2020. I think the other question is really to make up your mind. You know what's your outlook for 2020, and if you are seriously concerned and if uh, you as a as a manager you know feel that um, uh, the business could become overall more difficult then that also means you need to take some consequences you know you should uh, take a look at you know at your cost base you should take a look at uh, the investments you are planning you should take a look at the big projects you're doing and the return they will provide in the next year um, so I think in, in a way you could say, you know, get your house in order if you if you feel that uh, that times are more difficult. And um, so in that sense, I think the Christmas break is a great opportunity um, to uh, self-reflect and um, to take a, you know, a stack uh, on where you are on this. Um, and of course, uh, spend uh, sufficient time with our beautiful report. Mm-hmm. And to get you know well prepared uh, for 2020, and um, we're we're doing this podcast. We're planning another podcast. So I think there's uh, there's also our video is on YouTube um, and uh, can uh, can be uh, looked at again. So I think there's plenty of ways now to engage with the with the the research we've done, um, and we're looking forward to your questions, to your remarks. Um, Challenge us on your position on the top 20 list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had more than that, uh, you know, the last two days. Um, and uh, we are open for dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I would just add that for me, the single most important thing that came out of this year's report, if it's not yet apparent from this conversation, is that sustainability as a topic has gone 
from being something that happened in a small department somewhere in an organization to being you know firmly placed on this the agenda of this the c-suite and that means that basically everybody in the business has to think about sustainability it's gone it's both the number one opportunity and the number one challenge as we think about the fashion industry in 2020 and that means it's going to take more than just a small group of people who are like the green warriors in your companies it really means that everybody has to start thinking about it and it's such a big imposing kind of amorphous challenge but there are concrete steps that we can all take um, in our businesses to start addressing this uh, climate crisis so our industry has a lot to do in that space and i think it's incumbent on all of us to, to take these issues seriously so with that closing note i i thank you all for joining in we're signing off from london where it's all of a sudden very dark um, but hopefully it's brighter and more temperate wherever you are in the world bye 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 If you enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in joining BOF's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis in our Daily Digest email, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, special print issues, and all of our online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. For a limited time only, we're offering our podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on your first year of an annual BOF professional membership. To get this special offer, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package and enter the special code podcast 2019 at checkout. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a rating if you did and don't forget to share it with your friends. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. <coughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.